0: fellas, yeah. one, two, three, four, believing for a reason, making a case for the Christian faith. The first ever Believing for Reason podcast. My name is Daniel Edward, and I'll be your host for this. Um, just a, a quick little bit about me, a little background. Uh, just for your reference, I'm not a doctor, I don't even play one on TV. So, this is um really coming from the perspective of what I would consider uh, I consider myself an average Christian, right? Someone who is interested in making a case for the Christian faith, um, but not someone who's had formal training necessarily. So, I think that can be helpful in some regards, and probably um, probably hurtful uh, in others. In, in that, you know, I may not uh, hit you with a ton of fancy terms, but I know a lot of people today are not looking for that. So, what I'm hoping to do here with this podcast, uh, as well as with uh, the Believe In For a website, is to kind of break some things down into some easy to understand terms for. Kind of the average Christian or average uh, non-believer, you know. So I'm hoping that is what you find here, and I, I welcome any comments. Um, so what I'd like to kick off this first podcast with is I wrote a, a post um, about a couple of weeks ago on the problem of the hiddenness of God, also known as the problem of divine hiddenness. Um, this is something that has it's, it's not a new uh, argument necessarily, uh, but it's one I've been seeing quite a bit. ...popping up in a lot of uh, conversations on a variety of different uh, social media networks. Um, it, it's one that uh, a gentleman named J.L. Schellenberg has uh, uh, written about back in 93. He put out a book on uh, divine hiddenness um, and human reason. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to expand on the post, but I'll give some background first uh, for those of you who, who may not read those posts myself. or may not have uh, time to, that's fine. Um so, you know, Schellenberg kind of breaks this down. It's like a really looking at a relationship. So, you know, uh, if God exists, then, you know, he essentially would want to have a relationship with us. Um, and and there would be no reason to disbelieve in his existence. Uh, granted, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, you know, but the, I think it's been simplified even further, but it still gets to the, the heart of it. Uh, in, in these three points, essentially, if God exists, he would make his existence blatant or obvious. Uh, God does not make his existence blatant, uh, critics to Christianity or uh, theism may argue. Uh, therefore, God does not exist. So I, I think these, uh, if you look at these three statements, um, I, I think there's two, two issues going on here uh, w- with this, this argument. Uh, One issue would be, there's an assumption here, of course, that God does not make his existence blatant. I'd say that's an an assumption. But a second, perhaps less obvious assumption that we're looking at here is that people would actually believe in or follow God or conform to his will if he did make his existence blatant. Um, And I think that's a... That's a false assumption, right there, and and there's some some historic or, or biblical proof, uh, I would say, for that. So, one example uh, I like to just kind of touch on. We can find uh, in Exodus. So, you know, many of you may know the uh, the, the story of Exodus. But you know, have, uh, Hebrew slaves are enslaved uh, by Egyptians, and God uses Moses and Aaron to to help free the slaves, and in doing so. Um, through, through Moses and Aaron, God brings ten plagues against Egypt, uh, specifically the fire in the Egypt, Egyptians, in order to let his people go. So I think a lot of people have heard that, let my people go phrase. And I, th- I think this is a very obvious example of, of, of God's power in his existence, uh, certainly for the Hebrews and definitely for the Egyptians uh, in this case. So, you know, at first it, it starts off a little smaller. You know, Moses uh, turns his rod into a snake um, you know, well that might be tricky, but maybe that's not necessarily proof that God is doing something. Maybe He's just a, a good illusionist, right? But you know, then there's uh, you know, plague of locusts. There's a plague of frogs. Uh, there's a you know, there's there's ten individual plagues, and it goes all the way down to the point where um, the firstborn of each Egyptian is uh, killed, and this is this is where uh, Passover comes from, um, in, in that the the Hebrews were instructed to uh to paint their their um doorways with with blood essentially and that would allow death to pass over literally pass over them and not touch uh those hebrew slaves or israelites um and therefore only the the firstborns of the egyptians would suffer the consequences of pharaoh not letting um these hebrew slaves go out into the wilderness to worship god so you know, I would say with with these ten plagues that we see in Exodus, it was is very apparent uh, God's power and his his presence and his uh, will was very apparent uh, to these these folks we'll refer to from here on out as Israelites. Um, and not only that, but once once they were allowed to leave Egypt, Pharaoh then pursued them um, with with bad intentions. So it comes to a point where they're they're against uh, the the Red Sea essentially and the egyptian troops are are looming they're coming in at them i and they said moses what's going on here we got our backs against the sea the 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 egyptians are are coming you know we're in bad shape here and and god uses uh moses and 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 parts the red sea allows the israelites to pass through unharmed across the red sea literally walking through with walls of water on either side Uh, and when the egyptians go to pass through the the sea comes back together crashing down on them Uh, another glaring example for that that group of people that hey god is he's here he's real he he wants a relationship specifically with with these people um and he is he's glorious and and worthy of being worshipped so what do they do do they do the israelites go on and say you know this this makes a lot of sense uh you know i've seen god's power i understand he's here it's obvious it's blatant his existence is blatant Therefore, I'll worship him uh, and and be righteous forever. Not even close. Uh, We see in Exodus uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. uh, This is ESV translation. It reads as follows. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, "Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?" Verse three. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, "Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?" Now this is a break in here for a second. You know, this is a strong statement uh, these people are, are making. These Israelites are making. Uh, you know, are you trying to kill our children with thirst? I mean, that's obviously uh, not, not what's going on here. I mean, these people were saved out of out of slavery by miraculous events. So why, why would, I mean, that's a good question. Why would that happen if they're just going to stand here and die of thirst? So clearly they're not going to die of thirst. God's going to provide, but they're not. They're not seeing that. They're not believing it. So in verse four, it goes on to say. So Moses cried to the Lord, "What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me." And the Lord said to Moses, "Pass on before the people." taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you here on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel. So, and, and well, he goes on to say, And he called the name of this place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So here's Moses is kind of scolding these people. Is the Lord among us or not? You, you've seen all these things. You've seen the glory of God. You've seen what he's willing to do for you. And still you're saying you're going to let our children die of thirst. Um, it's it's pretty unbelievable. So he's like, listen, is this enough? Is this enough for you to believe? For you to do what you're supposed to do as a people of God? You know, so here are people that have direct, what I would say, direct revelation from God saying, here I am. I'm, I'm alive and well and present and, and working here in the world, and they still question. They still don't believe, and he is not hidden, right? So it's, it's a very uh, interesting example here that speaks against uh, this hiddenness of, or perceived hiddenness of God or divine hiddenness being a problem, really. Uh, and it's not just the Old Testament that talks about this. It's replete with examples in the Old Testament. Well, let me give you a New Testament example as well. So in John uh, chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and this is a famous uh, story of, of what's come to be known as Doubting Thomas. In uh, and chap- and verse 24 it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of these nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, this is a heavy statement. Thomas is one of the inner circle, one of the 12 disciples. He has seen Jesus perform miracles. He has seen what Jesus can do. He's heard Jesus' message firsthand. He's an eyewitness, one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry uh, on earth. And still he's doubting, you know, so Jesus died and he's thinking this is a problem. Yeah, you know, this, this guy I can't believe he died I do not I d I don't I don't believe he's coming back. So he's here here he is. I will never believe until I physically sense it for myself. then uh, verse twenty six says eight days later his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not believed who have not seen, yet have believed. That is powerful. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you know Jesus is, is calling him out <laughs> right here, and he's saying, you know, you've you've seen everything I've done. I have I have revealed that myself as God to you, yet you're not a believer. I mean, this 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 is a problem here, buddy. <laughs> yes, she's basically, if I could paraphrase, you know, it says he says, that's why he's saying, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. These people have faith. Now, this is reasonable faith. Don't get this confused or mixed up with blind faith. This is reasonable faith that we're talking about here. Um, You know, so, and and God does call us to be reasonable followers, to be faithful but rational followers. In Matthew uh, 22, chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, And all your soul, and with all your mind. So, now obviously loving someone with all your heart—that's that's that's metaphoric, right? So, and I understand that. I would argue that loving someone with all your soul is not a metaphor. Soul and the physical body are two separate things here. Um, But certainly, loving someone with all your mind is not a metaphor. This is—we're thinkers, right? People are rational. Not everybody's rational, but people are thinkers. So all your mind is saying, you know, have a reason for your faith. You know, believe for a reason. Um, you know, so all your mind, this is no mindless following needed. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, states this. It reads, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, a reason that the hope is in you. Yet yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. And Christians, listen up. Do it with gentleness and respect. So be prepared to make a case for the Christian faith with gentleness and respect. This is not name-calling. This is not berating. This is not picking out certain people or or people groups and, and bashing them down. That is not what this is about. This is make a case, yes, stand your ground, yes, do not waver, but with gentleness and respect. So God expects us to have a reason to believe in Him. You know he he express he expects that we approach his word with faith and logical understanding. So Paul explains in Philippians chapter one verse sixteen, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Guess what? That's that's why we're put here, Christians, for the defense of the gospel. God, Jesus, they don't need. Our defense. They don't need us to defend them. Um, we're here to put to, to defend the gospel, to make a case for our faith. Keep that in mind next time you go to go to church or you're talking to someone, especially a, a non-believer or a believer too. Um, so you know we we can't defend something that we don't know anything about. We can't defend something if we don't have any direction with which to defend it. Uh, but we have the signs. We have the direction. The ball's in our court. And you know, there's something else about this—the uh, problem of divine hiddenness here. Imagine, if you will, a, a, an opposite problem. Uh, I would call this the problem of persistent divine revelation. So, what what if God just showed up all the time? So imagine, imagine uh, you're you're sitting with a group of people, whoever whoever you normally sit with or hang out with, and God appears right right in the middle of you. You know, just. Plain as day, it is obvious he is God in all His glory. So, the the Bible tells us that God is perfect; He's righteous; He's glorious. To be in His presence, how could we, after seeing that, and then let's say He's there for however long, and then He goes somewhere else, so to speak, you know, to the next uh, lucky group that gets to experience uh, God on earth. It would, would anything in life be worthwhile after being in the presence of God? Would it going to work, for example? How meaningless would it seem to go to work after you understand what it is to be in God's glory? First-hand experience. I, I would argue that it would be almost impossible. I, I would argue that we would be so caught up or so intrigued or so wanting of that experience again, that it would essentially be sinful. That the experience would be what we were focused on, and not the the being God. And in this case, they gave us that experience. It blesses with that experience. You know, I th- I think this is a problem. You know, and not only that, but uh, interesting. I was watching a, a debate with William Lane Craig, and somebody asked him uh, a question. I forget who he was debating with, to be honest, but I do remember he was asked a question similar to. You know, why doesn't God just tell us what his plan is? You know, why do we have to go through this kind of unawares, if you will? And when Lane Craig is thinking about it, he said, well, you know, wouldn't it be a strange world if every time something that we perceived as bad happened to us, God just spoke to us and told us, don't worry about it. There's, there's a reason for this. So you're getting ready for work in the morning and you slam your toe into the corner of a wall and it just, it hurts like crazy and it makes you late for work. And then God just pops in your head and says, don't worry. There's going to be an accident on the freeway and you would have died if you hadn't stubbed your toe. <laughs> this, he explains it as kind of a, a weird, kind of haunted mansion, if you will, of a world that we would live in. So I know, granted, that might sound a little silly, but in, in another way, it does kind of make sense. You know, it's we, we do. We are we're meant to, to figure some of these things out and just entrusting God you know Um, and and so going back to this persistent divine revelation you know could we even would we even really have a choice um, about loving God or not accepting or not if he was constantly there and we knew his glory we knew his awesomeness we knew his power I would say this takes away our our choice our free will and leaves us with something that is impossible to say no to and and this goes back to can you truly love someone if you don't have a choice but to love that person i would say no love is about choice choosing to love choosing to follow choosing to have faith choosing to say it's not about me god it's about you this is what we're called to do um you know, so let me give you another example of someone who uh, who did have some direct revelation about God. Um, and, and let's see, you know, how how he, he puts it. So, uh, Apostle Paul writes in Second Corinthians, this is in uh, chapter 12, and again, I, I, I do most of my reading out of the, the ESV. I do look at other translations, but uh primary one we'll be talking about here is ESV. Chapter 12, and this is verses uh, 1 through 10, so bear with me here. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Let's talk about this for a second. So he says, I know a man in Christ. Paul here is talking, speaking about himself, right? This is not some, some dude he met on the road. He's really speaking himself here, but, you know, from the way I see it here, the way I understand this is Paul is... Not trying to explain, not trying to have the uh, Church of Corinth understand that it is Paul necessarily, because that's kind of miss the point here. What Paul's trying to come across with. So, and I think you'll see this here in a minute. So, Paul says, "I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven." So, 14 years prior to writing this letter was before it was a time period before Paul had went on his first mission. So, keep that in mind. Plays into this. And what does Paul mean by caught up into the third heaven? So first of all, let's kind of talk about the third heaven. So the third heaven, you know, at, at the time, um, you know, people at the, in, in this time that Paul is writing saw not necessarily three different heavens as we would define heaven today. Uh, the, the first heaven in this time of, of Paul's writing was the sky where the birds are flying. That was considered the first heaven, and, and it's you know, so to speak. The second heaven, if you will, is is where the stars are, right? So we're talking about space here, the universe. The third heaven is heaven as we would define it today, right? Actual heaven where God is and Jesus and yeah, you know, and those things that the Bible explain. So, yeah, you know, they don't think there's multiple heavens here, I just want to make sure that's clear. And so what does Paul mean by caught up? So well we can get an idea of what caught up means in uh first Thessalonians. So I'm gonna go over to first Thessalonians, uh, just briefly if we can uh bear with me while I sidetrack here this is in chapter 4 and I'll I'll be starting with verse uh, 13 chapter 4 verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians it says here but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep what does asleep mean? people who have passed away or died already that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep those who have died For this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. We'll talk about that. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what does this mean here? So the, the dead in Christ. So that's talking about people who, who are Christ followers, who are believers, um, who try to lead godly lives here, consider themselves in today's terms Christians, for example. Those who died already, and then they were in Christ, they were followers. This is talking about a physical resurrection here. How do we know that? Well, as far as the, the Bible tells us, and as far as Christians believe... When we die, our souls, the souls of believers, go to heaven, right? So we're in heaven. Our souls are in heaven with God. So then then it's talking about here, the dead in Christ will rise first. What would be there to rise if not our physical bodies? We're not talking about we're all going to look like uh, you know zombie apocalypse here. We're talking about, I, I mean, obviously I don't know exactly what our bodies are going to look like, but all I know is this. There's no death. In heaven, there's no sickness in heaven, no disease in heaven, no sin in heaven. So, our bodies, in that sense, will be perfect in that they're they're healthy, they're without disease, they're without all these things that were subject to on earth, uh, due to the wages of sin. Here, so, uh, so this is talking about physical resurrection and a physical, uh, a physical um, catching up, if we will, been caught up of. Christians who are still alive at this time, Jesus' second coming, that's what this is referring to, and you're reuniting of those physical bodies with the soul, of those who are dead. But this is at the same time that the Christians who are alive today on the earth, at the time of, that this is occurring, the same time they'll be caught up into heaven as well. Does that make sense? And there's a lot more about this in Revelation, but that'll be for a, a different a different podcast. So let's go back to what Paul is saying here in uh, chapter 12 of Second Corinthians, and we're going to pick this up um Right at verse 2. Let's go through this again. So, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Paul doesn't know. It could have, I could have been there in the body. I might not have been. A lot of stuff going on right here being caught up in heaven. <laughs> you know, memory is kind of fuzzy. I can understand that. And I know, he, he goes on in, in verse 3. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own half, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Here's Paul's point. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn... Was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here, Paul is is caught up into heaven. He's raptured. He's he's raptured. He's taken up into heaven, right? And he sees he's in the presence of the glory of God in the perfect heaven, and and he is sent back down to earth to what to begin his ministry. Fourteen years ago, before his first mission trip. Paul, he was sent back down to write, you know, a good portion of the New Testament. I'd say is is one reason he sent back down, right? So it's, he still has a lot of work to do. But I think in this in this particular way, God was very specifically preparing Paul to do this. So three times Paul goes on in verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. This is talking about the the thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you. My power." is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is it's first of all, it's it's not about it's not about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's it's about God, the glory of God. So you know, Paul was, was caught up into heaven here. And, you know, the, the, he experienced something glorious. I mean, if, if I was caught up into heaven, I want to come back down. I was talking about this this somebody today, in fact, and they said, Hey, I'd want to come back and write a book. It'd be a bestseller in no time, I guarantee it. Um, but Paul did, wasn't looking at that. Paul did sort of write a book, <laughs> you know, in his epistles. But it, it, he was talking, listen, when I'm weak, that's when God works in me. That's when I bear fruit, when I'm weak. Guess what? So this problem with divine hiddenness, how does this relate? This problem with divine hiddenness here, it's not a problem, first of all. You know, when we are weak, that's when God is perfect in his power through us, right? He He is using us in our weakness for his glory, and that's what it's about. So if God is is here with this you know, persistently revealing himself to us on a regular basis, so there is no doubt in our minds that we know who God is, can are we gonna are we really weak at that point? Paul Paul was, was boasting about the, the flesh in his side, the thorn in his side rather, in his flesh, um, you know, that, that God has given him so that he might not boast by, about going up to heaven and hey guess what guys, you might think you're pretty cool, but I met the big guy upstairs, you know. Paul said, No, I know it's not about that. I understand that. That has been revealed to me. Divine hiddenness? No. God has revealed himself. That's why we have the Bible. That's why we have these biblical stories. That's why we have the evidence that we do. So let's kind of take this back to the, the initial uh, statement here. So it said, If God exists, he would make his existence blatant. God does not mis- make his existence blatant, therefore God does not exist. Well, based on what we've seen in, in, in the Bible, based on what we know, I would argue that if God exists, I agree with point one, if God exists, he would make his existence blatant. God makes his existence blatant, therefore God exists. This is just one one argument, uh, I would say, uh, some atheists are, I've been talking about as of late especially, Um, There's a lot more arguments, but guess what? There's a lot more evidence. There's more evidence for God's existence, for one, but moreover, that Christianity is true than there are arguments against it, against either God's existence or the truth of Christianity. I encourage you to to seek out out some additional material. Do some reading. There's lots of of podcasts out there. Um, These people are not affiliated with me, but I strongly recommend... um, the Stand to Reason Please Convince Me podcast check out the Stand to Reason uh, radio show it's a three hour deal but you know throw the the, the ear pods in when you're working um you know I'd recommend a lot of these uh, Theology Unplugged is a great one so there's a lot of material out there if you're not a reader you can just listen how about that you can check it out on YouTube you know check out J.P. Moreland William Lane Craig Ravi Zacharias these are some some what uh, James Warner Wallace would call million dollar apologists out there um Check it out, and I appreciate some feedback on this first podcast. I'll take that constructive feedback preferably into consideration, and hopefully get better as this at this as as I go. So I hope you enjoyed the first "Believing for a Reason" podcast. Uh, in the meantime, God bless and fight the good fight.